Okay, so thank you uh, everyone for listening to the first of this podcast, which is aiming to give a series of perspectives on the 11th century in European history. And to kick things off, um, I'm joined by Professor R.I. Moore, uh, Emeritus Professor of the University of Newcastle, um, very well known, of course, for his work on heresy, but also a pioneer in the field of global medieval history. And we're here today to discuss his piece in 2003 in the Journal of uh, Medieval and Early Modern Studies entitled, if I've got it in front of me, here we go, The 11th Century in Eurasian History, A Comparative Approach to the Convergence and Divergence of Medieval Civilizations. Um, and just to give everyone a brief summary of the article, um, I mean, Bob, correct me on this later if I've, if I've got this wrong, but um, the article in 2003, you argued that we should think of cultural divergence in Eurasia not so much as dating from the end of late antiquity, the end of the end of the ancient period, but more really in the kind of 11th, 12th century periods, centuries. And that that change, that divergence is in part to do with changing structures of uh, elite, elite culture and elite education. And in this article, he looks in particular at the Latin West. China and the Islamic world. And I guess just to start things off, really, Bob, I mean, how far this article was published quite a long time ago. How far has your thinking changed since then? So far as what you've said so far is concerned, it hasn't really changed a great deal uh, in that I still think, um, indeed, I think more firmly than I did then, that it is in the 11th century that the great cultural blocks which constitute the modern world were formed, uh, and that the central process in the formation was the consolidation of the learned elites and the degree of control which they were able to establish over various aspects of social activity um, and uh, to, uh, to some extent of the exercise of power. And the article, I guess, yeah, you sketch out how those that those modes of control differ, I guess, in each of these each of these cultural blocks, and that's how that that's not a kind of pre-given in Christianity or or, or Islam. Yes. It's kind of working yes. on, yeah. Um, yes. One thing that struck me, and it struck people, maybe other people reading this article, um, is the focus on, as you've just said, really, on the connection, the relations between elites um, um, and especially cultural elites, learned cultural elites between states and the institutions which, which support them. And, and of course, family and family really struck me as um, uh, playing quite an important part in your argument, actually. And I wondered how far you think family, you know, well, how, how central is it to your argument? Oh, it's absolutely central because it seems to me that the, the common problem that everyone faces uh, at this point in, in, in the 11th century, wherever you look, wealth is growing immensely. Uh, and the, that, of course, generates competition, conflict, status. And the problem that all family groups, however they're constructed, have is to maintain their position and, and uh, defend their, the, the, those that are already established, defend themselves against those who are creating or taking advantage of new wealth. Uh, and so uh, th they all have the problem of, of how to hang on to the uh, social or cultural dominance and political influence uh, that they'd already got and, and, and how to uh, keep their hands, as it were, on, on the levers of 
new power. So everywhere we've got these kinship groups who are facing similar problems and similar opportunities, I guess, um, um, yes. as well, but come up with different solutions in different contexts, I guess. Yes. Yes. Um, that leads me on to another question, actually, about that. It's interesting that you say this is all about this is a period of economic growth everywhere. Um, and um, uh, and in the article, you talk about this as expressed in particular by the growth of the capacity to maintain cities, um, you talk about citification, uh, which I, which I, which I, I, I quite I quite like. Um, and I wondered if you, well, firstly, how would you, why, what's driving this economic growth um, in the first place? And secondly, would you stick to your kind of emphasis on on the importance of cities in particular as kind of a, a marker, I guess, for um, um, I don't know, a kind of level of cultural attainment, I guess, or social attainment. Let me take those questions the other way around. Uh, the The second is one in which I, I have changed my mind, um, or at any rate changed the way I think. In this, in 2003, I used a model of urbanisation, which was very much that of Gordon Child, uh, which he developed in his... Uh, his great book, whose title has momentarily slipped my mind. <laughs> um, but I'm sure you know the one I mean. Um, uh, and uh, that, that just won't work sufficiently now. There are too many cases that it doesn't fit. Um, most obviously, uh, for example... Um, uh, in Africa, both in 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 West Africa uh, and in uh, Northeast Africa, uh, but it also won't work um, in Eurasia because it supposes a much sharper distinction than there now seems to have been between the way in which life was organised in what we used to, we do still call the step and the zone. That is to say, there were there were in fact many settlements uh, outside the frontiers of the traditional sedentary societies, uh, which were city-like um, in their functions and and, uh, and and to a large extent in their layouts and so on. So the notion of city needs to be, or what what one associates with it, needs to be much more flexible. Uh, than the idea that I had then. The, the, the book is, I think, The Urban Revolution by, by, by Gordon Child, I believe, is the one you're referring yeah, to. The Urban Revolution is what he called it, but it's not the title. Ah. <laughs> <Well. laughs> <laughs> but okay, so. That it will come back. Um, but okay, so, right, okay, so essentially blurring the, yeah, okay, the, the, it's, yes, um, um, a slightly softer distinction, I guess, between cities and uncitied in that. In that yes, 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 yes. Um, and the, the most important part of the change is that for child it was absolutely crucial uh, that a city had an urban uh, had a hinterland whose exploitation it controlled very directly and from whose surplus it lived, um, and and that is obviously remains a common structure but it's not a universal one yeah that's, yeah that's a, it's a very coercive model i guess of, of how cities yes, operation yes yes um and the second question then then bob about this um this yeah what's driving where this does, this? where does growth come from yeah. yes well that's a good question isn't it <laughs> um 
I don't, I don't have a simple answer for that. Um, I, the most fundamental place it comes from is the extension of cultivation. Uh, is that the, the, the amount of land that is under cultivation in 1100 or 1000 is much, much greater than it had been, say, at 500. And that is not only of land within uh, the, uh, the, 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 as it were, the, the, the heartlands of the ancient uh, empires, but also the huge extensions which were taking place from the 8th and 9th centuries onwards, uh, wherever you go, uh, there is just a great deal more farming being done. Um, where it's being done, it's also, of course, being done better in various ways uh, through, through technical improvement, uh, through, through the fact that in new, new, new land is being opened up, which is more fertile, which is extremely fertile, and so on. That's where it starts. Um, it, that obviously goes hand in hand uh, with increases in exchange which become much more various and much more regular. Uh, again, one might say from these, these boundaries are always arbitrary, aren't they? But one can see that clearly from a, certainly from the eighth century onwards. Um, so I, I, I certainly don't offer any startlingly original account of where that growth comes from. I do say that I think on the whole, although not so much now as it was 15 or 20 years ago, uh, historians have generally not been sufficiently insistent on its importance and on the extent to which it's both a condition of everything else and conditions everything else. The fact that you have constant competition for access to that new wealth, I think is absolutely key to almost everything, almost everywhere. So because it's not a stable system, basically, there's a kind of increase, yes, which, yes, you know. Exactly, yes. And of course, that, I mean, I mean if, one, if one increases the chronological span of one's uh, historiographical um, thinking, that is a very sharp contrast with how people thought about the Middle Ages even half a century ago. Yeah, period of decline and so forth and so on. Decline or stagnation. Yeah. Um, it's interesting. I mean, in modern environmental terms, we might say then this is a kind of period in Eurasia anyway of people people having a great there's a greater human impact, I guess, on the, on 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 the environment, right? Is it yes, absolutely. Uh, and of course, that is that is something whose negative side we're going to find ourselves thinking <laughs> a lot harder about uh, than that than we have up to now. Yeah, no, this, uh, increasingly coming to everyone's the forefront of our attention. Absolutely, it's, it, it, it's one area where the notion of progress has really got to be thought hard about again. Um, I did want to talk about a little bit more about Eurasia and the way in which this article in 2003, you focus on, um, as I've said, the Islamic world with particular interest in Syria, the Latin West um, and China and, and the logic behind, I mean, these are, China in particular is a contrast, European China is a contrast which goes back at, well, to Weber, actually beyond Weber, right? But also it's been very popular 
um, in in the hands of, of Romanists um, and um, people have been working on comparisons between ancient Roman and, and Han China. But I know you've been interested in recently more interested in, in India, and I wondered whether you know that that got another pretty important part of Eurasia, and I wondered how that might play into the arguments you were sketching out in two thousand three. Yes. Um, well, it, I, it, 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 it's very disturbing, really, um, because in 2003, I tended to assume, uh, and again, I think I probably wasn't alone in this, that by and large, India worked much like the others. It was part of a set of, of ancient civilizations which had gone through a period of difficulty and then re-emerged in different forms. Um, and uh, urbanism was clearly central to that and so on. And although most of the comparative discussion that had been up to that point had left India out, uh, I think probably most people assumed that it would fit in if they knew enough about it, as it were. Um, I think that is quite clearly not the case. Uh, and that actually, the more one knows about it, and I can't say I know very much what I do know, I think is extraordinarily interesting, the less it fits uh, alongside um, Europe, particularly uh, East, particularly the Byzantine world, uh, the Mediterranean, the Middle East, and China. What it looks much more like, um, I think, in the in the 11th century, in lots of ways, it looks much more like Northern Europe, like Japan, um, and to a fairly obviously also, but different again in other ways, uh, Southeast Asia. Uh, and the the, the 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 big factor is that uh, the two big factors are these, I think. First, of what what. India always has is huge amounts of forest and the clearing of forest uh, is central to everything that's going on in India through our period just as it is uh, in, 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 in Europe, all over Europe and just as it is in Japan. Uh, whereas in, the, in, 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 in China, um, in the Middle East, uh, th through the Mediterranean, wood is becoming very scarce. There isn't new land, by and large, to be opened up, and they are having to operate in different ways. Uh, so I think the I think the Indian dynamic, to that extent, uh, fits with a as it were it fits with a different division uh, of how the, of how Eurasia is to be described to the one that certainly I used to assume. So is this as in India with a, of a land, as a land with an open frontier? Yes, that's right. Certainly, yes. Um, and the other thing about it is that what it does not have, again, uh, is continuity of city life. Not even the sort of broken continuity uh, that we talk about, for example, for the, for the Roman world. Um, uh, Indian cities just aren't continue they the, the, there had been cities from the very beginning in bits of India in the Indus Valley and so on but they did not have continuous existence uh, and that is largely because of the extreme violence of the ecology uh, 
huge shifts in the of in in the uh, in the courses of the rivers, and very frequently, they the Indus and the Ganges systems don't seem. And I'd like to know much more about this. I'm, 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 I may be quite wrong in what I'm about to say, but as far as I can see, they don't seem to have secured even the rather limited degree of control uh, that was secured over the Yellow River, for example, where you, you do get periodically in Chinese history, uh, you get catastrophe when the Rev Yellow River changes course. Um, but it happens, as it were, a limited number of times, and in between you have some sort of continuity. I think the, 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 the shifting of both the Indus, um, uh, the, the Indus Valley, uh, or, and Valley is too, too small a word, the, the Indus Basin, I suppose, and also for, for especially for, the, uh, for Bengal, uh, for the, the um, deltas of the, of the Ganges and the Brahmaputra, those are constantly moving. They're still moving and changing. Um, and so you get uh, an, whatever, uh, whatever urban settlements are established in them tend to be rather short-lived. So what, what, what is a good place for a city at one point is no longer a good place for a city. Yes, you know, bad places get silted up, their water supplies get disrupted, uh, they get flooded and so So this means and then... You also have, sorry, you also have extreme violence of weather uh, and you have a good deal of volcanic activity. It's all happening in the Indus Valley. In the Indus Basin. Yeah. Um, but okay, this means that Bob that too... It's not just a question then of slotting India into the comparison. It would challenge the frame, the parameters. Of that's it. right. That's right. I think so. Mm. Um, okay. More work to be to, to to be obviously more work to be to be done there. Um, can I bring the conversation back to Europe? Um, you are making the article we're talking about um, is called um, um, you know Europe. It's it's framed in terms of the eleventh century. Uh, would you still? I mean, you you posit here the eleventh century as a critical period in European. History mm -hmm. I, is that is that a point of view you you, you would still uh, uh, defend uh, uh, twenty years on? Oh yes, certainly it is. Um, uh, again, if anything, um, uh, more determinedly than I did then. Uh, I, the, the, of, of course, there are changes of emphasis, um, and I would not. I would now be even more ready than I was then to agree with Dominique Barthélemy, for example, uh, that the model that Georges Duby had created of the feudal revolution and all that is too sharp, too precipitate. Um, that change was much more gradual, much more localized, uh, but nevertheless, it's fundamental. Um, and I think one of them, in a, an image that I have come to like very much is that which I got originally from, um, uh, oh dear, I'm sorry, I'm getting old and I forget names. Uh, it'll come back again, but it's the image of crystallization because I think that uh, is an image which says change can be very gradual, but also sudden that, that uh, as the, that, that if you, uh, keep feeding something into a liquid, uh, quite suddenly you get a moment when its nature changes, even though the process that led to that change has been very slow and very gradual. And I think if I were going to 
take issue with Dominique Bartomi, which I would do only with the very greatest hesitation. <laughs> I, would, I would say that he doesn't always bear that possibility in mind. Okay, yes, as in so different ways, I guess the different ways of thinking about changing out, yeah. Okay, so, yeah, um, yeah. Uh, uh, incidentally, the name that I was thinking of, which is a very important one, is that of Bjorn Wittrock, ah. uh, who, who with um, uh, Johan uh, uh, Arneson edited the great, great volume on transformation uh, in the 10th, 11th centuries, which I was very fortunate to be involved in. Um. One, one final question, um, which is this, actually, simply, what are you working on at the moment? Well, uh, what I'm working on at the moment is the book that says this stuff. <laughs> um, again, uh, at greater length, obviously. Um, I'm writing it for, for my History of the World, the Black Hole History of the World, of which I'm general editor, and so I have, for a very, very long time, shamelessly watched other people writing volumes for my series and not done my own bit, but I am writing it now. It's called Foundations of the Modern World. Um, and what it is presenting uh, is an argument that those that the transformation uh, that takes place in the 11th, 12th centuries is what creates. And I use the word foundations. I like foundations because it's not determinist. You can lay foundations, but that it doesn't follow that what you put on top of them has to have any particular form. Uh, you can even build up beyond them in some ways, and you don't have to use all of them, and you can change the internal arrangement. And, but nevertheless, foundations, I, th I think it's a, it's a good image. It, uh, they, do, they do set certain limits, and they do tend to point you in certain directions. Uh, when you're when you're constructing your building and deciding what the internal plans are going to be and so on. Okay, so it's an architectural metaphor there. In full, yeah, in its in its full in its full in its full sense. Okay. Um, um, well, that sounds that sounds perfect, Bob, and I'm sure that everyone everyone here listening to this uh, will be um, uh, looking forward to seeing its its publication too. Um, I'm afraid that I have to be patient. <laughs> Well, thank you very much, Bob. Thank you for uh, this first podcast and um, thank you to everybody uh, for listening. Thank you very much indeed.